I got fired from my factory job. It was Dimitri who recounted the story. He was an ordinary guy, not particularly well-educated, kind of a small man, and Dimitri was a follower of Jesus. But this was not an easy time, and it was not an easy place. It was the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics at the height of the Cold War, the atheist state. Nick Ripkin tells the story in his book, The Insanity of Obedience. He talks about when he met Dmitri in the former Soviet Union. Dmitri had been born of Christian parents, and he found himself and his family living under communist dictatorship in an area where the nearest church was a three-day walk from their home. You could see the years written across the lines of Dmitri's face. This was a man who had suffered The authorities were clear in their demands. Illegal gatherings would be crushed. All the resources of the Soviet Empire were arrayed against Dmitri, and he was going to suffer and suffer greatly. One man, a few villagers, and a Russian-language New Testament against the proletariat and the party— against the schools and against the industries, against the bureaucracy and the secret police, against a network of spies and the KGB, facing off against the Red Army and the prison camps, the gulag in the frozen expanse of Siberia. Dimitri continues, I got fired from my factory job. My wife lost her teaching position, and my boys were expelled from their schools. And they were powerless to change any of those facts. Do you know what it looks like or what it feels like when it seems like all of the resources of the cosmos, every resource of human civilization is arrayed against you, against your family, against your soul, against the souls of your children and the people you love? Do you know what it's like when you feel utterly powerless, with no defenses, No resources, nowhere to turn, something that money can't fix, that relationships can't fix, that people can't fix. Do you know what church feels like when power is lacking? What life is like when God seems distant? Or perhaps when it seems like there's just no way, when everything seems pointless, when we're distracted from from what really matters, when we just can't get there, when life seems to be going nowhere. Some of you know in your own way, in your own experience, what that can feel like. We begin this Pentecost series On the book of Acts, the Acts of the Apostles, which is the historical record of those first few decades of the Christian church from the time that Jesus ascended to heaven. And at the beginning of chapter 1 in the Pew Bible, we're we're looking at page 1690, if you want to follow along there. At the the beginning of of Acts chapter 1, Jesus has risen from the dead, and yet he is still walking the earth at this point in those weeks before he ascends heaven. And during this time, he spoke to his church in order to refocus us on our new role. What is that new role, and how is it possible? We're going to read Acts 1, verses 1 through 11, if you'd follow along with me now. In my former book, Theophilus, 
I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles that he had chosen, and after his suffering, he showed himself to these men and he gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and he spoke about the kingdom of God. On one occasion, while he, while Jesus was eating with them, He gave them this command, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, It's not for you to know the times or the dates that the Father has set up by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. And after he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was departing when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said. Men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way that you have seen him go into heaven. What do we see here? We see, first of all, that Jesus gives his church a new role. We see it in verse 8 when he says, You will be my witnesses. Uh, For the apostles, this meant actual eyewitnesses. These were people who had actually seen Jesus after he had died, risen from the dead. They They were witnesses to the resurrected Jesus. It was a legal term, and they were simply to state what they knew, what they themselves had witnessed from the resurrected Jesus. The church, you see, is not just a group of people who get together because we like worship services and like lots of programs. The church is a called-out group with a very specific purpose. We're in existence to do something, to to fill a, a particular role, a new role, to declare the glory of Jesus is risen Christ and Lord. And and for us today, this means passing on our eyewitness testimony as the church, because our, our first members were the eyewitnesses, and, and this means we're carrying on what, we're, we're, we're handing off the information that they deposited and handed off to us. Um, St. Augustine in the early church talked about the, the humility that is necessary in order to be saved by God. Because for all of us who were not actual eyewitnesses to the resurrected body of Jesus, there were hundreds of witnesses, and we're that same spiritual community extended into history. And yet for us, there's an intellectual humility that requires us to accept someone else's testimony, to learn from them, to trust what appear on the surface to be the reliable testimony of people who were telling the truth. And yet this witnessing role that we have is specifically in relation to the person, Jesus. In the book of Acts, the emphasis is on the resurrection, even more than on the cross. 
Uh, In the book of Acts, the story is not the story of a Savior who rose from the dead, but it's the story of the risen Lord who also is the Savior. And, And this is something that everyone has to personally respond to. No one can respond for you to the authority of, the, resur- of the, the resurrected Christ. When he claims your life and claims lordship over you as the one who rose and holds the keys to death and hell, as the one who alone has eternal life and, and demands uh, obedience and trust and faith and loyalty, uh, no one can respond to the call of Jesus for you because it's a response to a specific person. Uh, this, this requires us to, I'm going to use a big word, but depropositionalize the Christian faith. Uh, you know, there are a lot of circles, even in our own kind of theological circles, in which you could easily get the sense that Christianity is a system of doctrine, sort of a philosophy, a system of belief. Christianity is not a system of belief. It is a person who died and rose and has ascended as Lord and is at the right hand of the Father and is present by his Holy Spirit, calling you to himself now. And yes, there is doctrine. Yes, he matters what you believe and theology matters, but Christianity revolves around this person of the resurrected Jesus and we're called to be witnesses to, to him. Even in our membership vows in a Presbyterian church, you don't receive and rest upon the gospel. No, you say... I receive and rest upon him as he is offered in the gospel. Our message is a person. There's an immediacy to this as he claims and calls you to himself now. We bear witness to him. But it also means bearing witness to what it is that we have experienced, what you've experienced. Have you, have you experienced the healing touch of Jesus in your soul? Have you received his forgiveness? Have you Have you seen him change you? Has he humbled you? Has he challenged you? Have you sensed his love moving you to love the unlovable? Have you seen Jesus change and transform your marriage? Has he changed your attitude? Has Christ done anything in your life? If so, then then he's calling you to this new role as a witness to what he's done in your life. Don't hide that experience, no matter how complicated or uneven or uncompelling it may seem to you, no matter how complex. You, you can share what you have experienced, what you do know. That's to bear witness to Jesus. And what have you seen Jesus do in other people? Because you can testify to Jesus by testifying as a witness to what you've seen in him do in other people. You know, think of the angry man who became caring and compassionate because of Jesus loving him. Think of the addict who found a level of freedom that she never imagined possible. Think of the outcast who felt a weight of shame lifted away, who found loving and and honest community, love and acceptance because of Jesus. Think of the arrogant religious extremist who annoyed everybody to no end and yet then was touched by Jesus and became extreme in their gentleness and extremely understanding and extremely kind and compassionate. Or think of the people pleaser who found in Jesus a new boldness to be honest. The lazy guy who spends all his time playing computer games who was touched by Jesus and, and, and his life was changed such that now he takes up the cause of the fatherless or the marginalized or the poor. Think of the terrible marriage you know of that took a huge turn for the better when Jesus showed up. 
the power-hungry executive climbing up the corporate ladder who threw it all away to take a simpler job where he could instead be devoted to his wife and his children and serving in his church and his community because of Jesus. Think of the student who cheated like crazy to maintain a perfect GPA. And then they were encountered by Jesus. And they became content with a 3.4 and a new integrity, having lost the world of WashU, but having gained their soul because of Christ. Whatever you've seen, your eyewitnesses, all of you, you don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to win a single argument. But Jesus has called you to bear witness to what you do know. How is this possible? It's possible because Jesus is still working. In verse 1, Luke writes, Luke is the author, he writes that in his former book addressed to Theophilus, that's the guy who paid for it, uh, you don't write books for free, you got to be supported, but Theophilus was the donor, and Luke was the physician who, who was doing a work of history. He was interviewing the people, and he says his former book, The Gospel of Luke, It was about what Jesus began to do. Which means that this second volume, after Jesus ascended, is about what Jesus continued to do. You see, this narrative is continuing what Jesus does as he brings the gospel to the earth. And it's, and it's all rising action. You know, he says, you're going you're gonna to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and then further out in Samaria and then beyond that to, to, you know, Greece, Rome, the very ends of the earth beyond. And, and the action keeps rising. There's no climax in this book. The flame keeps spreading. The power of God keeps spreading. The church keeps growing. It ends in... in Acts chapter 28 with Paul renting a room in Rome. And you think, okay, why end with that? Is that the climax? That Jesus died and he rose and he ascended and he poured out his spirit so that the gospel would get to Rome where Paul can rent a room. No, it stops there because that's where it was when Luke wrote. But the point is it continues. Acts 29 and Acts 30 and Acts 50. And right now you're like Acts 147 because Jesus is continuing to work from the perspective of the narrative. At this point, you are the climax of the gospel. If you look at the ends of the earth from the perspective of Jerusalem, okay, Jerusalem's over here. You circle around. What's on the other side? You are St. Louis. It's the, the narrative, the story, the flame keeps spreading. Jesus is still working. By his spirit. You look around the earth today, and you just look at what, what continues to happen. You know, I am fascinated by Iran. I love Iranian culture. I love Iranian food. I love, you know, Iranian modern architecture, which, by the way, is fantastic. If you ever get to visit North Tehran, there's some really sweet stuff. Uh, but, you know, when the Islamic Republic of Iran was declared in 1979 as an Islamic theocracy, Uh, at that point, there were an estimated 500 Christians from a Muslim background in Iran. Um, A hardline Islamic regime at that point brought persecution. Uh, Missionaries were kicked out. Many churches were closed. Evangelism was outlawed. 
Bibles in Farsi became illegal because they were a missionary tool. Uh, They became very scarce after that. A number of pastors were murdered uh, in a small Iranian church of 500 people spread across a huge country, half the size of the United States, came under tremendous pressure. And there were a lot of people who knew that the church there would very quickly wither and die. And yet, in the 38 years since, just the opposite is what has happened. Despite continued hostility since the 1970s until now, Iranians have become the Muslim people group most open to the message of Jesus in the entire Middle East. Uh, More Iranians have become Christians in the last 20 years than in the previous 1,300 years since Islam first came to Iran. Those 500 Christians from a Muslim background in 1979 today number in the hundreds of thousands, and some estimates put it at a million Christians from a Muslim background living in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Uh, Whatever the exact number, they're turning to Isa, to Jesus as Savior. Uh, Last year, Operation World, the mission research organization named Iran as having the fastest-growing church in the world, even though it's all illegal. The testimonies of Iranian men and women who've come to Christ are powerful. I could tell you about Kamran, who was a violent man who used to sell drugs and weapons. And one day a friend in Iran gave Kamran a New Testament. After reading for five consecutive days, Kamran fell in love with Jesus, and he gave his life to Jesus, even though he had never been in a Christian church gathering. When Kamran's family and friends saw his life transformed over the following months, many of them also came to faith in Esai, in Jesus, and a church now meets in Kamran's own home. I could tell you about Riza. He was a mullah, an Islamic scholar, who hoped someday to become an ayatollah. And one day, while studying at at an Islamic seminary in the holy city of Qom, he found a New Testament that someone had boldly left out on, the, on a desk in the seminary library. Out of curiosity, he picked it up. He began reading. He was deeply shaken. Over time, he too fell in love with Jesus. And today, Riza is a trained church planter who's helping set up other new and illegal house churches throughout the Iran region. I could tell you about Fatima. Her earliest memories were of being sexually abused by her brothers. At the age of just 11, she was sold into marriage to a young drug addict who abused her further and then divorced her when she was 17 years old. When she returned home, Fatima again was abused, so she left home again, and she lived homeless on the streets of Tehran, where she heard at one point the gospel of Jesus being preached, and she called upon Jesus She was baptized in a house church in Iran. She eventually married a Christian man, himself a convert. And as they were receiving training in Christian ministry, Fatima felt called to go back home and to witness Jesus to her family. Her entire family confessed their sins and gave their lives to Jesus, to Isa. And the first church that Fatima and her husband planted was in the childhood home in which she had been terrorized as a little girl. I could tell you about Beruz, who was trained through a three-month leadership course and in a country near Iran where they could do so legally in 2016. The day after he returned to Iran, Beruz went to a park and began praying silently. And he asked the Lord Jesus for an opportunity to tell someone about him. 
and a stranger quickly approached him, asked him for a cigarette. Instead, Beirut bravely handed him a Christian New Testament. Intrigued, the stranger revealed that he had been disillusioned with his own religion. He'd been wrestling with whether to become a Christian or a Zoroastrian. And right there in the park, he called out to Jesus and surrendered his life to him. Beirut continues to disciple, to mentor this new believer. You see, Jesus is still working. Luke's gospel is about what Jesus began to do, but this is about what Jesus continues to do. Jesus was in that park in Iran. Jesus was in that house where Fatima grew up. Jesus was in a library in an Islamic seminary in the holy city of Qom. He's alive and at large today. Friends, do you practice his presence? Do you believe the power of Jesus? Do you understand when he says, I will be with you always to the end of the age? Do you, do you accept when he says that I am continuing to work among you? Have you claimed his presence? Uh, you know, one, one church expert says that this is the promise of God that Presbyterians rebel against in the most rank unbelief most consistently. Because we can't see it. We can't measure it. We can't quantify it. We're too well-educated. We're too arrogant. We're too proud. We believe what we see instead of what Jesus tells us is true. When 1 John 4 says that God abides in us, in John 14, when when Jesus promises, my Father and I will come to you and make our home with you, When Jesus says, whoever abides in me and I in him, he'll bear much fruit. When Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock, open it up, and I will come in and eat with you and you with me. In Hebrews 13, when Jesus says, I will never leave you or forsake you, do you practice his presence? Because you're never alone. It's like in in Ephesians 2.17 when Paul talks about how the, the, the time in which Jesus went to Greece and preached in Ephesus in Asia. He says, Jesus came and he preached peace to you who were far away. And you say, wait a minute, that didn't actually happen in history. Jesus never left, you know, the Levant. He certainly didn't make it to Ephesus. But he did after his ascension, by his spirit, the presence of Jesus who is still working. This is about what Jesus continues to do. See, we become so timid when we think we're alone. We can't take risks, can't step out in faith, can't throw ourselves into an awkward situation or a difficult conversation or an impossible challenge if we're leaning on our own resources. You say, Greg, I can't talk to that person. I may not know what to say. I, I may not be able to handle something like that. And you probably can't. But that's the point. You know, we should stand convicted at the fact that we're assuming that Jesus won't show up that we're only trying to do what we think we can accomplish in our own power. Friends, faith in the presence and power of the resurrected, risen, and ascended Jesus Christ doesn't begin until you step out in faith into circumstances you can't control, that you're not secure with, where you won't know what to say. And that's when the power of Jesus descends, because Jesus continues to work. He says, I'm giving you a new role. You are to witness to what you know of me. And he says it's possible because he's still working with us. You see, the same power that fueled Jesus' ministry is still here to fuel your ministry. 
Look at the power in Jesus' ministry. You know, we often assume that Jesus performed his ministry because he's a God-man, and as God, he would be able to do miracles and wondrous things and speak with such authority. But that's actually not what the Bible says. It does say he's fully God. It does say he's fully man. But wherever Luke, in Luke's gospel, presents Jesus' power, it is always the power of the Spirit of God falling upon a human being Jesus and his humanity, who emptied himself of all but his humanity and his love. You see, the immortal one submitted to become like us, and we see that, that there's this power that emanates from him. In Luke 4, you know, Jesus went to Galilee in the power of the Holy Spirit, this mysterious power that emanated from him. In Luke 5, Jesus was teaching, and it says the power of the Lord was with Jesus to heal the sick. The power came on him, and there was, there was healing. In Luke chapter 6, the very next chapter, uh, uh, someone touched him, and he knew it because power was coming out from him and was healing all sorts of people. Two chapters later in Luke chapter 8, Jesus is touched by a woman who's, who's had an injury for years. And, and he says, someone touched me. I know that power has gone out from me. And then here in Acts chapter 1, Jesus instructs the apostles in verse 2, through the Holy Spirit, it says. And this same power is the power that Jesus is saying, I now give to you. In Luke 3, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but the one who is more powerful than I will come, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In Luke 24, Jesus said, I'm going to send you what my Father promised. Stay in the city until you've been clothed with what? With power from on high. And now, second volume, after the After Luke, we have Acts, volume 2, addressed to Theophilus, just like Luke. This power is now given to you. Jesus told the early Christians, in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And because of that power, you will be my witnesses. Spirit has now come to the followers of Jesus. It's the passage that, that, that Allison read in 1 Corinthians 12, for you were all baptized by one spirit. You were all given one spirit to drink. Rankin Wilborn encourages us to consider two different superheroes when we think about the Holy Spirit. There is, on the one hand, Batman, and then there is Spider-Man. Batman is a rich kid, and what is the secret to his being a superhero? He has all kinds of cool toys, but it's all external to him. Spider-Man, however, he's got some cool toys, but what's the secret to Spider-Man's superpower? But that he was bitten by a radioactive spider, and so a new alien presence took up its, its existence inside of him, and it changed him from the inside. This power, friends, have you been bitten by the spider? Has the Spirit of God come on you and quickened you and wakened you to see Jesus and to be energized because you love him now, because he's loved you? Jesus said, let anyone who's thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as Scripture says, rivers of living water will flow from within him. And by this, he meant the Spirit whom 
those who believed in him were later to receive. And as with every promise of God, this has an implied call for us to quit believing in our own resources and to instead believe in the impossible resources of Jesus. Because that same power that fueled his ministry now can course through your life in your ministry as you claim it by faith. Francis Chan is a a second-generation Chinese-American pastor in California, incredibly gifted speaker. And he talks about the experience he had with one of his daughters. I think he's got like seven kids. Uh, He says, "I, I can't make someone fall in love with Jesus. And 18 months ago, with my teenage daughter, I knew she was not in love with Jesus. And he says, I spent nights crying, bawling, praying to my Lord. I know I have this incredible ability to communicate, but it means nothing. I cannot do for my daughter what only the Spirit of God can do. I can't make her love Jesus. He says, I was powerless to change her heart. He prayed, God, either your spirit comes into her or your spirit doesn't. It doesn't matter how great a dad I am. I cannot bring her life. He says, one day she came into my room, knocked on the door. You can see her sitting down on the corner of the bed, her soft brown eyes looking up, a faint smile curling at the corner of her mouth. She waited to catch my gaze, he writes. It's clear there's something serious on her mind. You can imagine sighing inwardly as one wonders what's going to come next. She looked up at me and she said, Dad, you were right. The Holy Spirit was not in me, but now he is. She talked about how near she was to God how everything in her life was changing. Honestly, he writes, my wife and I were skeptical. We needed to see evidence of change. But he writes, now 18 months later, I can see that my teenage daughter really is a new creation. Jesus has claimed her. I didn't do that. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Against Dmitri and the Soviet Union stood all the resources of an empire at the height of its glory. Dmitri had started teaching his family one night a week, reading from a Russian-language Bible. It seemed a natural progression then to sing to this Jesus who they now loved as they read of him, and to pray to his father, and soon a Bible study turned into family worship. Neighbors began noticing, and some of them asked if they could come and listen to the Bible stories and sing the songs too. So a small group began gathering in their home. Local party officials soon came to see Dimitri. There's no freedom of assembly in an empire. They threatened him physically, which was to be expected. But what upset Dimitri much more was their accusation. They accused him of starting an illegal church. How can you say that, he argued. I have no religious training. I'm not a pastor. This is not a church building. We're just a group of family and friends getting together. All we're doing is reading and talking about the Bible, singing songs, praying, and sometimes we share a little money to help out a poor neighbor. How can you call that a church? See, Dimitri hadn't realized that uh, he actually had started an illegal church, only he didn't really start it. Jesus, by his Spirit, had started it. It was the power of God's Spirit who had fallen, calling out a people to praise the glory of Christ. And the forces of evil were determined to put out the Spirit's fire. I got fired from my factory job, he said. My wife lost her teaching position. My boys were expelled from their school. 
And when the number of people grew to 75, there was no place for everyone to sit. Villagers pressed close in around the windows from the outside. And then one night, as Dimitri spoke, the door to his house suddenly violently burst open. An officer grabbed Dimitri by the shirt, slapped him across his face, slammed him against a wall, and said in a cold voice, We have warned you and warned you and warned you, and we will not warn you again if you do not stop this nonsense. This is the least that is going to happen to you. A silence fell upon the group as those gathered stared in shock. And a presence fell upon the room, and they were not alone. A small grandmother took her life in her own hands, stepping forward toward the officers, the light catching the glimmer of her eye. A power came over her as she stood upright and waved her bony finger in the officer's face. And in a voice deeper and more thunderous than her own, she declared, You have laid hands on a man of God, and you will not survive. That happened on a Tuesday evening. And on Thursday night, that officer died of cardiac arrest. The fear of God swept through the community. And at the next house church meeting, more than 150 people showed up to hear about this God and about his Christ. Dimitri would spend the next 17 years in jail. His is a painful story of long, heart-wrenching separation of sons who would grow up without their father in the house. But it's also a story about one little, uneducated, unsophisticated factory worker who refused to let go of Jesus. One man who refused to stop bearing witness to his family and anyone else who wanted to hear. It's the story about the presence of Jesus and the power of his Holy Spirit on ordinary Christians like us. Nothing is going to stop Jesus from calling out a people for himself because Jesus in his holiness and in his grace is present among us as his spirit has fallen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus Christ, fall upon us today that we might see you and savor you and might receive your power. Lord, we consecrate to you the elements on this table that you administer to us good news and empower us by your presence, by your spirit, to believe and to be witnesses to your glory. We thank you for loving us, Lord. We love you. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.